Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams. And I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast, so we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info, and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, please let us know, and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the music we talk about, so you can go and enjoy for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is cellist and composer Chris Dirksen, who we both met while at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity in Canada a couple of summers ago. My string quartet got to work with her in Banff on a piece of hers called White Man's Cattle, which you'll hear us talk about during this episode. She's hilarious and awesome, and we had a really fun time talking about all sorts of things, uh, including a little interruption of her puppy. For her piece today, Chris has chosen to bring in Modest Mussorgsky's orchestral piece, Night on Bald Mountain. A huge thank you to our most recent donors. We literally cannot do this without you. This show is fully listener-supported, so please consider donating to help us keep this podcast running and to pay our friend, Joanna Neuschatz, for the wonderful work she does helping us edit. You can donate what you feel this podcast is worth to you in relation to what you have. Just head to paypal.me forward slash musicboxconcerts, which we've also linked in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and enjoy Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain. Hello. Oh my god, amazing. Hi. <laughs> you look so professional. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for making time to do yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are very happy to be talking to you. <laughs> so, Chris, on this podcast, we like having our guests introduce themselves. So, do you mind starting by introducing yourself? For sure. Um, howdy, my name is Chris Dirksen, and I am a cellist and composer. I'm also half Cree and half Mennonite from Northern Alberta in Canada. Um, half Cree and Mennonite makes me a Creenonite. Uh, I come from Treaty 8, Treaty 8 uh, in Northern Alberta. So if you know Canada, it's like 975 kilometers north of Edmonton, still in Alberta. Um, but currently I live in Toronto, Takaranto, which is the Dish with One Spoon territory. And I've been here for like six years, almost seven, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Practically a local. <laughs> well, considering <laughs> considering this year, I, I now consider myself a Trontoite. Considering I've been home for like eight months or what is it? Nine months now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And were you in Alberta before that? Did you go straight from there to Toronto? Um, no, I was actually in BC for 12 years. So I graduated. Um, I have a bachelor's in cello performance um, and I graduated in 2007 and have basically been on the road until COVID hit. Nice. Um, and today <laughs> you've brought in a very cool piece, Mazowski's Night on Bald Mountain. What was your first kind of interaction with this piece? Did you play it first or did you hear it first? 
Um, <laughs> I think I saw it on the Disney Channel first. Um, nice. The Night on Bald Mountain is part of like the Fantasia uh, like film. And like the original one. From yeah, the 40s. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And like I wasn't allowed to really watch TV a lot, but I was definitely allowed to uh, watch the Disney Channel at a friend's house on Sunday um, and like after church. And I thought that this piece was super dramatic, kind of scared me, and I really liked it. Awesome. How old were you when you? I don't know. Pretty young, probably like seven or something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is scary. I was just rewatching that scene earlier today because I didn't see I didn't see that movie as a child. Yeah, my parents. I mean, I also was not allowed to watch a lot of TV. (laughs) And then also my parents on purpose didn't let me watch Fantasia because they didn't want those images to be associated with those pieces of music they were like we want you to form your own images for these pieces interesting yeah yeah yeah. i'm not sure that was like the world's greatest call i mean it was fine i but then i did watch it when i was older and like that is a scary part yeah yeah and like the other thing about the the piece and relating to me and my family is that i wasn't allowed like we got rid of the my tv when i was five years old and got a piano so I was not really exposed a lot to a lot of tv so things really like affected me um so I think that's also why I really liked it because it really like shocked me yeah um and also it really went against my mom's like religious beliefs because it's all about witches yeah (laughs) the little rebel in me like this one (laughs) <laughs> really into it <laughs> I actually haven't seen the movie um yet another f- big movie that I haven't seen but um <laughs> is it like do they act out the witches that like in the in the movie or what what is actually happening in the movie yeah there's like it's animated um and yeah. it starts like with a big like kind of devilly creature and it's like because the piece is so dramatic as is um, yeah, there's a lot of smoke and like, and then the witches come through. I haven't, I like started watching it to recap um, earlier today, but then I had a meeting. <laughs> so Fair enough. I feel like <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, go watch it and then tell us what happens. Okay. Yeah, I think that's actually <laughs> yeah. exactly what should happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Totally. That scene is just on YouTube. So yeah, we would just highly suggest watching it. Um, so like, did it give you nightmares as a child? No, I don't think it – well, hard to know. That was a long time ago. Um, uh, I don't remember having any visual nightmares from it. Um, I think what I liked about it was the fact that it was um, just so over the top in, like, theatrics in the the sound of it with the the strings and, like, the horns. It was just, like – it's just really – dramatic piece of music and then as I got older and like went to university and started learning about composers and learning about the Russians um, I also really liked Mussorgsky because 
he was like a party animal um <laughs> to detriment you know he did die of alcohol poisoning um i think he was pretty young like like almost yeah probably. he was right he had a fast demise after 29 um <laughs> but i liked he was also a bit of a rebel um in his own rights and doing research on this piece he never it never got performed live in his lifetime yeah mm. right so that's pretty interesting. And then the other thing that I'm still like wrapping my head around is that the version that we hear on Fantasia, Nine and Ball Mountain, like that is most known, um, is actually arranged by Rimsey Korsakoff. So it's also like how much of Rimsey Korsakoff's voice was in there and how much was it Mazorsky's. But I really like, I love Mazorsky, like, the exhibitions, they're, they're beautiful. So I feel like there is a lot of his voice, but there also must be a bit of Rimsy Korsakoff's voice in there too. background, Modest Mussorgsky was a Russian composer who lived from 1839 to 1881. We talked about Mussorgsky's opera Boris Godunov in Mariana Soroka's episode, but in this episode we're chatting about his orchestral writing. Many of his works were inspired by Russian history and folklore, including this piece, Night on Bald Mountain, which has a Russian name that we will not butcher for you now. It was composed on the theme of a witch's Sabbath on St. John's Eve, which is the shortest night of the year, what we call the summer solstice. It's a big deal holiday in Eastern Europe. And as Chris said, this was never performed in Mussorgsky's lifetime, and the version that was first premiered in 1886 was arranged by his friend and fellow Russian composer Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. The version we hear in the Disney film Fantasia from 1940 is an arrangement of Night on Ball Mountain by Leopold Stokowski of the Rimsky-Korsakov arrangement of Mussorgsky. Not confusing at all. <laughs> we also just mentioned pictures at an exhibition. This is another famous piece by Mussorgsky, and yet another that was later arranged by someone else, in this case by French composer Maurice Ravel. It's based on ten drawings and watercolors by 19th century Russian artist Victor Hartmann, where the music depicts what's going on in the ten images. As you'll hear us say in a minute, Pictures at an Exhibition is a popular piece for youth orchestras to play, as it gives all the instruments a turn to do fun, fancy, fast things. Yeah, I can feel it feels like it's Mussorgsky. I feel like the feeling yeah. is is from him. But maybe like the really fast strings are from Korsakov because he, he really Yeah. Mm. Though there's some of that in pictures at an exhibition it's also. It's very mm. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beginning. Cuz I played that in youth orchestra and that was really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely played that. I don't think I've ever played 
uh, Night on Bell Mountain, like in orchestra. And my orchestra career was short. It was all of the years that I was in university. Um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started touring with an Inuit throat singer, um, doing something completely oh. different um, and never went back. Besides now that I compose for orchestra, but that's yeah. a side note. You're on the other side. I'm on the, the other side, side now. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the fancy side. Do you ever play also or when you're when you've written a thing for a larger group? Yeah, totally. So I have this project called the Orchestral Powwow Project that is um symphonic works around powwow music. Um, because I'm indigenous, it was definitely um a way for me to braid my ancestry with my like classical background so braiding two of my like I what I consider my like ancestry together um so that project it was originally supposed to be just like an album but folks really liked it and we managed to make it into a show that's like about 45 to 50 minutes long and um, at minimum, there's like 23 folks on stage. We've done it with full orchestra, and we've also done it with like chamber orchestra kind of situation. Um, but all of the pieces uh, kind of are based around powwow songs uh, that I compose symphonic works around. So when we do those shows, then I definitely am playing. Um, but uh, I don't always play, like I, and I also don't always want to play. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, do you feel like... Does it depend on the type of piece, whether you want to just give it over to the performers or whether you want to still be part of actually creating it in the moment? Is that kind of a thing that you have to think about? Yeah, and sometimes I write pieces. <laughs> um, sometimes I write pieces that are a bit too challenging that I don't actually want to learn. Great, yeah, give um, it to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, there's a piece, like, The White Men's Cattle is this quartet piece that I wrote for... Uh, not myself. I wrote it for the Eibler Quartet. Um, and it's not actually that hard, but what's hard is like staying in time in that piece. It's in seven. That is. And and I wrote it like a kind of a puzzle that fits together when you play it really well. Um, but it's really easy actually for the cellist to get off because, and once the cellist gets off, everything kind of. It's impossible. Yeah. Because I played apart. this last summer also. I, I yeah. played White Man's Cattle and worked with you on it. And it was, it is such a cool piece and it does fit together like a puzzle in a way that if one person gets <laughs> off, then the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I didn't really think about that when I was writing it. And then I had, I, I did have to perform it. Um, and I was oh, like, yeah? Yeah, I, I, I did a quartet show in Hamilton at the, at the McMaster School. And um, it was hilarious. They actually drove us from Hamilton. They got a, a white stretch limo to pick us up <laughs> from Toronto no. um and it was like all the way to Hamilton that's way, like how long is that drive it's only an hour um but yeah so but they're like this is the cheapest way to do it um <laughs> so like and they picked us up at like the Bloor station in Toronto it's like there's nothing sexy about like the Bloor like no, there is way station and uh there was this like old white stretch limo um it was hilarious anyways um I I play I had to play the white man's kettle then and I was like oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) I remember there's this one part in it that this is a little bit of a sidetrack but the hardest part I was playing the second violin part and you wrote a really cool thing where you trade off 
pizzicato, yeah, plucking the strings, and it is, they're all very close together, so it sounds sort of like a really cool waterfall when it happens right. And uh, the second violin is the one who has to go at the weirdest time. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like the third <laughs> no, eighth I mean, note? <laughs> like, yeah, or the third sixteenth note or something third, like that? 16, the second sixteenth note? It's like really in yeah. the, it's not where you think it should go. And um, it's so cool that we were like, it is worth working this out to be able to really get yeah it. like once you get it it does Ooh. it's like it has yeah. that really nice feeling yeah i think i might have taken that out now I was like, that's too hard. No, really? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe when I did it, I was like, no, no, no. (laughs) We're not doing that. (laughs) I'll let other people do that. Well, you can do whatever you want. You're the composer. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) What was it like for you to write that piece, actually? Um, That was kind of, it was super fun. Um, I was like, I've never, the Abler Quartet are a classical music quartet that actually play on gut strings. And I am a very much modern cellist who uses a lot of pedals and I have a carbon fiber loud uh, instrument. Um, So I was trying to work with their strengths, with their bow techniques, um, which is why like it has a do-do-do-do-do-do because I was like, you guys can move your bows super fast Um, and (laughs) like they're they're super fancy. Um, (laughs) But yeah. But I also wanted it to be kind of heavy because it's called White Men's Kettle. And it's the piece itself is based around like whose land is it? Um, and I am from Alberta. I am half Cree, half Mennonite from Alberta. So like half of me is a settler and half of me is an indigenous person. So half of my family took land from my other half of my family. And that's like it's hard to uh, it's hard to like reconcile with that even within myself right like it's like that's super real like I understand what happened in the colonization process I understand what happened in Alberta when they offered free land to settlers like that the idea that nobody owned this land is absolutely ludicrous because it was definitely very well taken care of and very used um so this piece speaks to that and it's the it starts with like an old white man farmer guy um, talking about it's like the ideal. One of the lines is like, where the buffalo once roamed, it's ideal land for the white man's cattle. And here in winter, warm winds call Chinooks, blow from the Pacific across the Rockies, through the crow's nest pass, licking the snow from the grass so the herds can forage. This country where the buffalo once roamed in the prairie wool is ideal range for the white man's cattle. And that's when the piece starts. Um, so it like really talks about, you know, whose land is it? And like cattle and buffalo also pretty much sound the same when they're running, right? Like they're just like there's so the the idea of um, of cattle and buffalo running was was is the beginning of it. Thank you. 
And then it goes on to be like, I bought this land, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's my land. And I looked around and I was proud. I am a farmer. I bought my farm in 1910. I was a young man then. I stood on the hill and looked out across the prairie and I was proud. This is my land, I said. It makes a, the listener really like look at whose land it is. And I have, I have a few other pieces that use this technique of taking archived sounds or archived voice from Canada, from uh, CBC, from the NFB. And and it's like the white people talking about Indigenous people. And it it flips it on its head a little bit because it's the actually the white person saying it. And you can hear how ludicrous it is to call us savages now and how it wasn't then, but how it's actually like this is proof that this is the words that you used about us. Um, yeah. 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 And how, how how did it feel? Because then you wrote it for white people to play. Entirely. I am one of those white people who has played that. <laughs> was that was that strange or like I mean that must have gone into what you thought about when you were writing it. Yeah, yeah it was definitely very purposeful because like I did a, a woodwind quintet that's kind of part of this. It's actually going to be a, a trilogy, but I did woodwind quintet first, and that was like my first woodwind quintet ever. But also, and so obviously, <laughs> I'm not going to be playing in it um, <laughs> as a cellist. Right. <laughs> um, so that was the first time I was actually really looking at what does it mean to be an indigenous composer who wants to still continue talking about things that are hard and real in Canada um, when I'm not there, when I'm not in the room, when when I hand things off. And also, like, knowing that the majority of folks in classical music are um, are white and, and don't necessarily have the knowledge that I do from doing my own research on Canada, um, how to bring my knowledge and my perception in when I'm not even in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a hard thing to grapple with, right? <laughs> yeah. And, like, it, it, I think it really helps, like, even – the performers, especially because they have to listen to the thing over and over again, right? So they're they have to like think about it every single time they play it. Which I also I think it's it's good. I think it's good to look at hard things and um, try and figure out where you sit with it. Yeah, and let it settle. Yeah, and it does feel um, as somebody who's performed this piece, it does feel um, uncomfortable and. Uh, like it makes you really think about stuff in a different way and yeah we've performed it my quartet has performed it a, at least two times here in the mm -hmm. netherlands yeah. which is also really interesting because yeah. we have a, can, a canadian um, a white canadian in our quartet and then two um people from the states uh, including me and then somebody who was born and raised here in the netherlands so we're sort of from all over the place but then some of us have way more of a um, an experience being from North America, but then playing it here in Europe when there's like sort of a different, they don't have these things. It's a different. Yeah, it's a different thing. But the, the audiences here respond to it really like well, really intensely. Everybody's always like, that was such an amazing piece. It really felt like meaningful, blah, blah, blah. Cool. So yeah, it yeah. does seem to sit well. 
I feel like when I go perform in Europe, it's like, it's just such a different response and a, and a different, like, it's a fully different audience that has a fully different, well, understanding and perception. I think there's like still a romanticized uh, opinion of Canada and how it has treated folks. And um, so when we go to, well, we played here, I did a show at the Edinburgh International Festival. It's like connected mm. to the Fringe Festival, but the one that, the bigger one that pays, <laughs> that pays. Nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> the Fringe, you have to like hustle to get paid. Um, so we did a performance of this this piece. It's a theater piece that is, um, it's called Kinalik, These Sharp Tools. And it talks, it's the theater piece is really honest. And it talks about like, north and south within Canada and what you think north is. Um, mm. One of our main performers is from Iqaluit or lives in Iqaluit is from Greenland originally. So like pretty, like actually really far, far north. Um, and it talks about climate change and it talks about a lot of really like hard, like indigenous truth. Um, and the audience just like did not have the same resonance um as as it does in Canada um but when we went and played in Mexico uh, I felt like there's a lot more resonance within it because there's so many more indigenous folks that were yeah. in the, or have uh or in the audience and have like the same feelings to what is the land but in Scotland you know they they have their own history of colonization mm. that um, is very different feeling than how we do in Canada. Yeah, I find that um, that rings true also with Australians kind of having you're in a country that has been colonised and is still grappling with trying to make reconciliation and some people not trying to make reconciliation. Oh, definitely. Um, and it's it's very similar to Canada and, yeah. and I guess more of the, the north of the US in general and I also find that in Europe, the the distance from where these big empires were colonizing is like it, it's it's a quite a big dif- distance, and so it's not an everyday thing that people think about. And so when then faced with these kind of issues in art or in whatever, there isn't always an automatic response to kind of engage with it. Yeah, yeah. Like it, I felt like it was more of an us them thing as opposed to we are, we are, this is all of our history. Like it very much felt like this is your history. And I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> Where did those people come from? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah no, yeah. it's true. It, there's a removal that you can, that happens if being in a country where they went from this country to another place to colonize it, as opposed to being in the place that you're like, okay, yeah. now we are all here. Yeah. And now we all have shared this history. Yeah. What now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. The last the last place that I played uh right before the pandemic hit was in Sydney in Australia. Really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, at the I, festival or uh at the opera house actually. Oh, fancy. Right? Um, but this is funny because we left on March 11th and we landed on March 13th. And so when we were in the air, <laughs> a lot of things changed. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, like within that 24 hours, the pandemic was declared. 
we were still able to play our show. Um, That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It was for the opening of the Sydney Biennale. Mm. Um, So that was, it was beautiful, but it was also like, I was like kind of choked up and was like, do I need to play Edelweiss? Like, cause I was like, this is my last (laughs) song in front of a live audience for a long time. Like, like what? Yeah. Um, I did not. <laughs> also, like for you to choose Edelweiss would also be kind of a funny choice. Of, like my homeland. Yeah. Yeah. Through an Alps with Julie Andrews. <laughs> I didn't know this, but that song actually was, I thought it was like actually a, a Switzerland song, but it's not. It's, it's, oh. It was composed for the movie. Oh, I really? Didn't know that. Oh, my whole childhood is. <laughs> I, oh, that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was wow. doing research because I was like, why did I feel like that need to like feel like so dramatic about? Well, it was dramatic. Yeah. It still is dramatic, yeah. actually. Yeah. The pandemic. Um, but I was like, why do I need feel the need to play like that song? Um, and then I did some research into it. I was like, oh shit! Like it's poop it's not even (laughs) (laughs) yeah well they did a good job i mean but like folk music comes from somewhere anyway and like then it gets into the whole thing of like some folk music was composed so why can't that just now be it yeah fair folk song Yeah, yeah 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 totally and like also okay that goes along with like traditional or contemporary powwow music because Tell us about that. Because, like, I think most people think that power music is, like, comes from really old, old songs. Um, and they, some of them do, but majority of them are, like, c- freshly composed, uh, like, fresh living pieces that the power group has just created to perform and to try and win um, at the powwow. So right. it's, like, a very much a living art um uh, like folk music where it is constantly you know it's like going to a big folk festival where there's brand new folk songs being played that's the same as like going to a powwow where there's brand new powwow songs being played except for the powwow is like a competition and um yeah and the pow the powwow circuit is a competition like a financial competition where power groups can walk away with quite a bit of money like up to 30k men like what yeah or some sometimes the pots are just like massive. Wow! And is it only like one group wins, or are there like first, second place, yeah, blah blah blah? There's first, second, third, and like within a power group, like it's like probably like as small as like six and goes up to like twenty people. So then you have to like split up. But still, if you won first place for thirty k, like that's pretty good. Um, and same with like the dancing. It's not like the dance. Yes, it's for like fun, for spiritual reasons, but also first place wins a lot of money. So it's also like a very like economic, lucrative uh, part of the indigenous like <laughs> underground lifestyle. Yeah, yeah wow. amazing. And like a way in which art is supported, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A way in which art is encouraged and like they make their own regalia and uh, it's it's a full way of life, kind of. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, very cool. And I imagine it takes like, you know, a very long time to develop the skills necessary to be a part of that. Yeah. And a lot of it's like, you know, family things. Like there's like the tiny tots category. So like the three-year-olds go out. Yeah. Right. Just like little brown babies in regalia, like (laughs) dancing around. Um, so cute. <laughs> yeah. Did you grow up doing them as well? No, not really. I grew up uh, mostly in Edmonton um, with my mom. Uh, so my dad is is Cree. He was a chief when I was growing up. Um, but I grew up mostly in Edmonton with my mom, uh, who is Mennonite slash uh, Christian. Um, and so I think I went to my first powwow when I was like 12 ish in Edmonton and it was like I went with some friends some family friends and it was like in a gym (laughs) and yeah uh and I really liked it they there's always like a marketplace um at powwows so um you can buy things and I like you know I'm 12 years old it's like the 90s and there's like all this grunge like leather stuff that I was so stoked about like a little bullet on a chain, you know, like so cool. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> Was your mom into that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, cool. The rebel in you it didn't. <laughs> yeah, we had we had we had our times. We're really good friends yeah. now. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's hard to be a teenage girl, you know. <laughs> it is. It's hard to be a teenage girl. It's pro. It's also hard to be a mom of a teenage girl. Hard to be a teenage yeah, human. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got a puppy, and so I'll look forward to, uh, you know, I think she's probably in her teenage. She's like ten months old, so she's not quite a teenager yet. Oh my god! It's in like so a cute. year, yeah. How is it going with the puppy? Oh my god, it's going so good. It like the first month, not so much. Okay. <laughs> the first okay. month was a wild. How did she do with the with the guinea pigs? We don't really let her do anything with the guinea pigs. Okay, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> the guinea pigs live uh, on a on a high table in the front room. We've got a baby gate in the middle of the house, so she's in the back room, and the guinea pigs are in the front. Um, good. So it does sound like normal teenage behavior. Everyone sort of locked up in their own bits of the houses, kind of like, no, <laughs> get away. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of no happening. <laughs> anyway, so music. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, we can talk about that forever. Fine. Also puppies, but <laughs> yeah. yes. Okay, Emma, ready. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to ask a question about music. All right. Um <laughs> No, there's so many things actually, because I want to talk about the folk music in um, this piece. Um, but also this piece meaning as in, as in the Mazorsky, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, bring it all the way back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also the fact that it's set on a mountain mm-hmm. and it really, the sound of it makes me think of like Eastern European mountains. Right. Um, and I don't, yeah, okay, so you feel that too. Does it remind you, like, do you feel like you're in a mountain when you're listening to it? And did you grow up in the mountains or were you in a different? No, I, I, I'm i like woodland, but mm. like, like. Sort of close, but not quite the mountains. Yeah, like or Edmonton is not at all like Banff or yeah. it's like prairies, you know, it's like flat and and there's a lot of hay and and, and things being grown 
Um, So I grew up like, and also like where my reserve is up north and where, where the community is up north, that's like woodland like area. So like a lot of trees, like a few hills, um, Buffalo Ed Hills. There's like, there used to be a lot of uh, wild Buffalo, um, not so much anymore. It's really close to a park called Wood Buffalo National Park where the wild buffalo actually do roam free. And I've gone there a lot um, when I was a child. Um, so, but me, uh, I went to the mountains a lot as a kid camping, but it's not really like my homeland. Yeah, okay. So it doesn't, does this piece make you feel nostalgic for home or does it feel like it's quite, you know, because it's kind of got this Eastern European vibe? Yeah, it doesn't really feel like home to me. Yeah. I think like it feels, it feels like, almost exotic to me because it is so like eastern european same Um, yeah also with the bell tolls like there's something about the bell tolls that happen yeah it makes me feel like that's like far away also (laughs) and dramatic yeah I, I wrote a piece in my second album called uh, Mussorgsky's House. And it's like, <laughs> it's got a really big, like, mch, 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 like house dance drum to it. And it's Amazing. also a bit dramatic. And, and it was my like tribute to Mussorgsky's love of the party. Yes. Awesome. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we have so much in common. <laughs> Did you also use like witches' inspiration for your composition when writing it, or <laughs> slash? Do you want to be a witch? I mean, this is quite an important question. <laughs> I mean, my wife does identify as a witch, and she does like okay. like ceremony things. Um, but I definitely don't. Um, I think it's like the Christian upbringing. That <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's a Satan for me. You know, it's ingrained enough. Yeah, yeah, it's a Satan worshiping for me, actually. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. Well, I mean, and actually, like Musorsky, we were doing some research on this, and we found maybe you know this quote also, but he he was writing to somebody about this piece. And he says something about like, oh, yeah, I'm writing about the witches and how on St. John's Eve, which is hilarious, but it's like St. John's Night, but they go, it's the witches' Sabbath, they go up and worship Satan. So yeah, we found the quote Chloe was just talking about. Mazorsky wrote a letter to Professor of Russian History and Language, Vladimir Nikolsky, describing the piece. Mazorsky originally called Night on Bald Mountain, St. John's Eve, after the holiday, and this stream of consciousness letter is a great way to get a glimpse of Mussorgsky's psyche and the way he thought of this piece. 
So far as my memory doesn't deceive me, the witches used to gather on this mountain, gossip, play tricks, and await their chief, Satan. On his arrival, they, i.e. the witches, formed a circle around the throne on which he sat in the form of a kid and sang his praise. When Satan was worked up into a sufficient passion by the witches' praises, he gave the command for the Sabbath, in which he chose for himself the witches who caught his fancy. So this is what I've done. At the head of my score, I've put its content. 1. Assembly of the Witches, their talk and gossip. 2. Satan's journey. 3. Obscene praises of Satan. And 4. Sabbath. The form and character of the composition are Russian and original. I wrote St. John's Eve quickly, straight away in full score. I wrote it in about 12 days, glory to God. While at work on St. John's Eve, I didn't sleep at night, and actually finished the work on the eve of St. John's Day. It seethed within me so, and I simply didn't know what was happening within me. I see in my wicked prank an independent Russian product, free from German profundity and routine, and, like Savishna, grown on our native fields and nurtured on Russian bread. He totally, he totally knew. And I think he really, I feel like he related that really well. Um, yeah. And I, I also think he was really proud of this piece, you know? Like, I just feel like, uh-oh, my dog's coming. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, where were we? Like, Mazorski. Mazorski, witches. Witches. He knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. And I think he was, it wasn't performed in his lifetime, and I think he was really proud of it. And I think he kept on trying to get it performed in, like, all of these different kind of ways. So it was, like, used in, we have a dog. It was used in uh boris uh, one of his operas or no not yes. boris opera not boris uh but that's his only opera right like he was trying to write another opera using this material yeah for for choral for like a, a women's choral piece and i'm like how is that gonna work like mm. all the witches yeah <laughs> all the witches. so many witches <laughs> so many witches it's just been halloween i'm just letting everyone know that we're all a bit witch crazy <laughs> yeah we are a bit witch crazy Oh my god! Aww. She's having a dog break here. She's so cute. She's also. We also think she's a witch. She like, yeah. She can conjure up things. Okay, yeah, I believe it. Anyway, it does sound like he really did try and get this piece performed by reworking it a lot. Yeah, I wonder. Do you have any idea what he would? What do you think he would think of the Fantasia version of it? I think he would have been stoked. Right. Yeah. Like I think he was all about like kind of trying to break the barrier that I think he felt he was or like the the walls that he felt he was in in classical music I think he was trying to like get out of that like even with pictures of an exhibition like the like the poems like he was always thinking bigger than what was being thought of before so I think he would have been pleased yeah yeah I agree yeah do you think you would have been friends with him yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, we would have had a few pints together yeah for sure yeah i think so (laughs) um what are your favorite parts of the piece the beginning i like i just really it's like the tension um the like everything about the beginning just really the theme of that is so cool
the way it builds also I find really like it just takes you on on the ride up the up the mountain I guess yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah yeah but then he like stops he'll like build and build and build and go really really intense and then he'll just completely pull the rug up, out from under your feet I love that and technique then there'll be this silence it's amazing yeah Yeah. Learning silence and composing, not in a John Cage way, you know, like, like learning when to allow that moment of breath becomes so dramatic. And in, in it, it's like yeah. one bar rest can be like such a dramatic feeling. And then going back into it. Mm-hmm. I definitely use that. Do you feel like that came from Mussorgsky? Probably. How much do you feel like he's influenced your... Hmm. I have no clue. It's hard to say, like, what part of what, like, how much percentage of anything has influenced me. Like, Yeah, of course. I get asked this a lot um, about, like, they're like, well, obviously, like, we can hear your indigenous sound inside, but how come, like, what's your Mennonite side? My Mennonite side was old colony Mennonite, and they don't have music. So Mm. (laughs) I'm like, it wasn't really, I I can't use that as an influence when there's like not really music allowed. Um, Maybe that's the silence. (laughs) 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 Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you can't take like, you know, 50% of one half of myself and 50, like it's all myself, you know, like that doesn't make you also like, it is such a weird question of like, I I asked a question that I realize is a completely ridiculous question of like, how much of this is an influence? (laughs) But I mean, I guess like, of course it's influenced you because you really love Mussorgsky and it mattered to you as a child and it made an impression on you. So then somehow it's part of your voice because. Yeah. And I look at being a composer, like being a jeweler, like where you take a jeweler will take like different bits and gems different gems that they like and then they make it their own piece right so um you know like hip-hop and and like um there's like lots of different things that I take from nature to create my own to create my own pieces um that are that have all been influenced and like the other thing that I think about a lot is like you can't close your ears like when you're tired and like and we're always being um inundated by music wherever we go like uh in the uber getting groceries like there's music there's like um like commercials there's music when you watch tv and like i don't necessarily i don't actually actively listen to music anymore mostly because i'm composing all day long so i get tired but i also I actively don't listen to music now because I don't want to get overly influenced by one thing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You feel like you're always hearing stuff in your head. Are you like constantly composing in your head all of the time? Or is that like you sit down and you compose? Um, a little both. Sometimes I, I dream things, which is cool. Because then oh, that is cool. I wake up and I'm like, oh, that, that was a good thing. And then I try and write it down as fast as I can. <laughs> it does not stay very fast. Very yeah, no. <laughs> I realized I had also a sidetrack that's not mm-hmm. important, but I did have a dream the other night that um, I 
like was crocheting some back pockets for somebody's pants that were like <laughs> not a good call, not a good fashion <laughs> choice for Julia Wedman, actually. Mm. Um, and so I was messaging her about it and she was like, what did they look like? And she was trying to ask me. And so I was like, oh, I'll send you a picture. And I was like, no, wait, I can't because it was only in my head. <laughs> like it was a dream. It only exists in my head. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you can't compose. Uh, well, I guess you could make the the jeans yeah but it was like so not nice enough looking like it was not a good call I was like nobody should wear these so I don't know why I would make it (laughs) yeah cool uh is there anything else that we this has been a little bit of a conversation that's gone a lot of places is there anything that we've missed (laughs) that you want to say um I don't know not really you know like it's a great pace yeah. yeah, it's a super fun piece. And I also think like, okay, here's what I do want to say. I do love uh, I do love film for bringing in classical music into the modern day psyche. So yeah. things like Fantasia as a child, the new Fantasia, but also film music is so dramatic and so, and it's cinematic and it's symphonic. Um so I really think like things like Planet Earth with the BBC Orchestra playing is really a beautiful way for folks that aren't into classical music to really hear it and really have a fun story to go along with it. Yeah. Which yeah. I feel like this piece does. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people started loving classical music by watching Fantasia. Totally. I, I yeah. think it's it's not an uncommon story. Yeah. And speaking of films, there is a bit in this uh, Nine Ball Mountain that reminds me of uh, Harry Potter. I feel like Mazorsky influenced a lot of film composers yeah, of the 20th century. I like, agree. You can hear a lot of his stuff all through like John Williams's scores, Zimmerman's scores, like yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, I applaud him for bringing the dramatic out in composers. Yeah, way to go, Bosorsky, for that. <laughs> um, okay, and before we let you go, we have a final question that we ask all of our guests, um, and that is: Is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of? Oh, shoot. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> right? I don't know because, honestly, I don't think I have one. Um, and it's mostly because I've not been paying attention recently to what is going on around me in the classical music world. And it's been quite a while since I was, like, fully immersed in classical music. I mean, I think the harp is super beautiful. And... Mm. I think the French horn is also super, super beautiful. And I'm a little bit jealous of the tuba because it, mm. it can give some really beautiful supports and mm. make things pretty cool. Yeah. Any particular tuba pieces? <laughs> I feel like in my – okay, where I really like – fully respected the tuba or how I fully respected the tuba was when I was composing for orchestral powwow and in round dance uh the the piece starts off pretty quiet and then when that tuba comes in it's like 
we're here. And like, Mm. it really like grounds it and like expands the landscape of what was already written. Um, So that was the first time I was like, wow, I really like the tuba. Cool. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Um, and how can people support you and get in touch with you and um, find your stuff? Um, I have a brand new website. Like Yay. that took me, took me a little bit to re rejig, but it's just chrisdrickson.com, C-R-I-S-D-E-R-K-S-E-N.com. So you can find all of my music is all on there. Most of my compositions are on there. We're still uploading a bunch of stuff. Um and my agents on there so you can if you want to hire me that way and then also just like friend me on Facebook um that's a great way you can follow me on Instagram but you'll just see pictures of my dog and my guinea pigs man look I think that's pretty good (laughs) that's true I mean those are also lovely right but you and it's true you've been doing some really cool Facebook live things totally there's yeah there's been a bunch of shows there and there's going to be more to come um this this winter season i'm not doing too too much right now um performance wise because i am doing a four-part docuseries for the knowledge network on the history of bc and i also just finished up the indigenous fashion week online uh editorial which is like 40 minutes of straight music wow Amazing and and yeah, the docu series is uh, it's a each show is an hour, so um, there's a lot of music that's coming out of me right now in that way where I am in my pajamas and not in front of folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah. That's I mean that's a lot of work for you to be doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's quite the the workload, but it's cool. I'm I feel very fortunate to have such a workload during a time where a lot of musicians don't quite have the same. Yeah. And it's a thing you can be doing right now while you're at home, home in your pajamas. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, we're going to put all of those links in the show notes so people can find cool. them and get in touch with you. And Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Oh, thank you so much for yeah. chatting with us. Have fun editing. <laughs> thank you. We will. <laughs> Such a pleasure to talk with you, Chris. Thanks. Cool. Have a good, have a good night or day or whatever it is over there. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Chris Dirksen. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. Apparently, this makes the biggest difference on Apple Podcasts, so if you've been listening there and haven't rated or reviewed yet, we'd really appreciate it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts and Twitter at Outside Music Box. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. Big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing and reminder to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash musicboxconcerts. It's super easy to donate and these donations help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode 
and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Chris is by checking out her fancy new website, chrisdirksen.com, which we've linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box. Music